I've often heard it said that, that you can judge a person's character by the company that they keep. And I thought about that, and it's like, well, well if that's true, then perhaps nothing says, nothing speaks of the company that we keep more than who we eat with. There's something about the dinner table as a symbol. It can symbolize either inclusion or exclusion. There's something about the symbol of a dinner table that throughout history has been used uh, to designate a class, uh, whether you're acceptable or unacceptable. Um, maybe an insider or an outsider. It's a, it's a profound thing, and it talks of the company that we keep. I mean, Carol and I, we're, we're both uh, fans of Downton Abbey. So on a Sunday evening, uh, that, that's part of our, our routine for a few weeks a year. And for those of you who don't know the show, it's a, it's a show about, it revolves around Lord Grantham and his family. And it's a great big house, and you've got them and the family living upstairs, and, and, and downstairs, you've got the, the butlers and the servants and the maids. And, and if you watch the show, you'll see that so much of it revolves around the table. And what you see is that around these tables, it's quite clear that upstairs uh, live the higher class, and at the downstairs tables are the lower class. And so it's symbolic of their status and acceptability in society. We move it a little closer to home, though, in our own country. We can see evidence not too long ago where, where the table was seen as a, as a symbol of segregation. For the black community, it wasn't that there weren't other tables. They weren't even allowed to be in the same restaurants. And so this was a real exclusion and embrace. And it was recent times. To come a, a, a little more closely to home, at school, when I remember growing up in the dining hall, and so much spoke of who you sat with at what table would be uh, who you're acceptable to and, and who you weren't. It spoke volumes. And so if we can judge a person by the company that they keep, then I think the company who we dine with speaks so much in that situation. And that, that leads us to a question that we're going to be asking over the next few weeks in, the, in this Lenten season. And it's to ask, well... Who would God eat with? Who would he um, invite to his dinner table? And as we look and explore that, then what might that show us about God's character? We're going to be looking at a, at a series in, in Luke's gospel. Over the next five weeks, we're going to look at five encounters based around a meal table. So we're going to be spending intimate time around a meal time with Jesus. And we're going to explore that and today, we see in a, a simple text, we're going to encounter Jesus, and he's going to meet a tax collector, some of the tax collector's friends, and there will be this interesting encounter with the Pharisees and the scribes, an interesting conversation that happens there. It's a funny thing, like you look at a, a text like this, it's only five verses, it's really simple. And sometimes we're tempted just to, to open the Word and we take a look at it. And we read and we treat it like fast food. It's going to get in, get out. I can see the point. Jesus didn't come for the righteous but to call sinners to repentance. We go, yeah, got that. And we move on. It's a sort of a dine and dash. But I wonder if this morning, could we just take another look at this text? And could we stop and take a look 
and with new eyes see how that would speak to us today in this season of Lent. A man and his wife gave birth to a baby. They were both Jewish and and they longed for the fulfillment of God's promises about his kingdom. They longed for the day when there'd be justice and peace and things would be made right. And the father, Alphaeus, he named his son Levi. It was a name that spoke to their family ancestry. The tribe of Levi, it had had an important role in the nation of Israel. They were to serve the priestly role for the nation. They were to act as mediators between God and his people. With high hopes for their sons, for their son, they'd called him Levi. And they're hoping that one day he might grow into this role of great honor and importance as a mediator between God and his people. Now, there probably wasn't any one particular day where Levi woke up and decided to desert the faith. He probably never woke up one day deciding to lead a deliberate life of, of sin. But just as his parents had told him when they taught him the scriptures growing up, it was a gradual walk on the wrong path. It was a collection of small decisions leading away from the path of life. Before we're too hard on him, maybe he grew up and he saw the hypocrisy of the religious system. Maybe he saw the self-righteousness of those who served him there and he was just put off by it. Maybe we've heard of such things today. Perhaps over the years it was just the subjugation and the mistreatment by the Romans that had just worn his hope down. Perhaps it had snuffed out any hope of the reign of God finally actually coming to Israel. Maybe after years of of disappointment and, and suffering, he ended up just settling for pragmatism. Just do what it takes to get by. Maybe he saw the uncertainty of life as a fisherman or a farmer. Maybe he saw the, the harshness of bad harvests, the stormy seas and the danger, and maybe he's just allured by the promise of economic security. Maybe that knowledge of a set income and the security that came was worth turning and serving the Romans. He looks and uh, he sees the decision to serve Rome. It was, it was going to cost him friendships. He knew that. And yeah, there would be people that would call him a sinner and might look down on him. But he would have security and wealth. And he would still have more than enough friends to fill a house when he threw a banquet. I wonder if we not also been tempted to take a secure option instead of the one that calls for faith. We can't be too hard on Levi. And this particular job that Levi was offered it was one as a tax collector. In Rome, they would set him a, an amount of money that he had to collect, and anything beyond that he could take and he could keep it for himself. And so his, his tax booth, which was kind of like a toll booth, it was going to be set on the shores of Lake Capernaum on the road leading from Damascus to the Mediterranean. Mediterranean. 
That was a lucrative spot, and he was going to have great wealth from it. And so Levi took the job, he took the money, and he took the security. Instead of becoming a priest and so being an intermediary between Yahweh and his people, he took the job and he became an intermediary between Rome and the people. Instead of a life serving God and his kingdom, he served Caesar and the empire and effectively himself. On this particular day, though, Levi was in his booth and he was at work. And he noticed a buzz about the town. There was this buzz going around that this man named Jesus had come. And he had been, he'd been healing people. He had healed a paralytic and a leper. And he'd been proclaiming the good news that the kingdom was at hand. That he was the son of God. Word had it that he was a teacher that spoke with authority. In the moments of quiet when Levi allowed himself time to think and reflect, he also longed that he could meet this Jesus. He wanted to be a part of this new thing that was happening. But he had made his decision, he had cast his lot. Sinners like him didn't believe in that sort of company. But that day, he heard words that would change his life. Follow me. He had plenty of Jews come up to him and say, I've got two words for you. But there had never been those two words. Follow me. A welcoming, sincere and irresistible call. And Levi looked up. And his eyes saw the one who had first seen him. He experienced shock and joy and, and fear and exhilaration. Of all the people around, why had this man noticed him? He was a sellout and a traitor. He was one who fell so far short of everyone else's expectations. The only time anyone ever noticed him was to stare daggers and to abuse him. When we looked into the eyes of Jesus, he saw the eyes of compassion and, and love. Eyes that could look at him and see him for more than the collection of the sum of his life choices. Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed. His response was unexpected even to himself. I mean, the Romans would never give him his job back, having abandoned his post. And there went the security and the wealth and everything that he had sold out for. He was probably going to be rejected by a bunch of his friends. And who knew? Maybe even some of the religious people already following Jesus would re reject him also. But here was a prophet, a priest, and a teacher who's giving an invitation to be his disciple. It was like a call back to his true self, back to his true calling, Levi, an intermediary between God and his people. To accept the invitation, yeah, it was in a sense to die to his old self, but it was an acceptance to life and a more fullness of life. 
It was as though in Jesus he had found the pearl of great worth. He had found this treasure in a field and it was worth selling everything just to have. And then recognizing and seeing this pearl of great value, he, he looked and was like, this isn't something to be hidden. This is something that's to be shared. He wanted to have others encounter this Jesus to come and see and meet this man who had seen through him and is calling him to his true self. But surely wouldn't Jesus, a holy man of God, the one called the Son of God, surely he wouldn't eat with sinners like him. Surely he wouldn't cross the lines of table uh, culture. He nervously asked Jesus he would come for a banquet. And shockingly, Jesus said, yes. Levi called his servants and had them prepare a great feast. They were a rough lot. All sinners, traitors like him, unlikely to conduct themselves in the appropriate way under Jewish custom. But he wanted them to meet Jesus. It was a crazy sort of a dinner party. It was some just thought he was nuts, and they, they just rejected him outright, told him straight out, you're a fool. And there were other ones who were just interested and wanted to hear more. What was it about this Jesus? And most of the time, he had no idea how to answer them. He said, why don't you just spend time with him? Come and see, hear him speak about the kingdom. At one point in the night, there was a, a bunch of Pharisees. They came in with their scribes, and they were shocked at what they saw, disgusted. They looked, and they were so offended that this man who claimed to be the Son of God would eat with such an unclean bunch of tax collectors and sinners. For them, inclusion in the people of God was a matter of ritual purity. They had taken it to such an extent that the purity laws that had applied to the, to the priests in the temple had now been extended across all of community and was expected in all parts of life for all people. It was funny because as angry and upset as they were, they wouldn't confront Jesus directly. They turned and went straight to his disciples and asked them why they ate with tax collectors and sinners. It was funny seeing their faces when they realized Jesus had heard and Jesus turned and answered them directly. Levi expected them to rebuke them and to call them out. But instead, he just looked and he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi had never thought of himself as someone who was sick, not like the lepers or the blind, the crippled that Jesus had cured. But he knew Jesus was right. His wasn't a physical sickness, but it was something that went deeper. It was a sickness that separated him spiritually and relationally. Separation from others. More importantly, his relationship with God. It was a sickness that had separated him from a sense of self as well. It came with deep shame and deep regret. It came with anger and with hurt. And as he reflected, he realized what good news this was for someone like him.
You don't have to wait till you're completely healthy to go to a doctor. You simply have to admit you're sick, admit your need, and go to the one who can heal. The Son of God, therefore, wasn't coming to dwell with the ones who thought they were acceptable, but the ones who could recognize that they weren't. Jesus was like the shepherd that the prophet Ezekiel had talked about, who would come and gather the scattered flock, bind them up and and heal them. He was about more than the cultural rules that determined who was excluded and who was embraced. He had in mind a different sort of community, one where entrance was not through external acts of righteousness, but through true repentance exhibited by a reorientation of life's priorities. It's mealtime with Jesus. It's a, it's a really simple passage. It's only five verses long, and yet as I reflected and prayed over it this week, it spoke to me. And I think it speaks to all of us because it's our story. It's the story of us. It's the story about a God who created a good creation. Created, and he said, it's very good. And he created us in his image and his likeness to reflect him, to serve him, to advance his kingdom, reflect his character across the world. And it's a story of us who instead turn to other agendas. Instead of reflecting God, in his character, we started reflecting other gods, the gods of money and wealth and power, sought not to worship God, but to worship ourselves and other things. It's the story of a people who gave up true life for something that promised much and fell short. When I read about Levi, I see myself. In Matthew's account of this story, it says that Levi was a publican, which is, it's a term that means tax collector. When I first um, came back to, to meet with Jesus, I was a publican in the term that we would understand. I owned a bar and I was far from the Lord. I'd known a calling to the priesthood since I was eight years old. And over the years, I'd rejected that to pursue life on my own terms. I had many friends. I had enough friends to fill a bar when it came to celebrate a birthday party. It's funny, I I thought I had community and life. And it's funny when I look back because me and my friends would not have been a group that many Christians sort of wanted to come and be around. In fact, our place of gathering was a place that most Christians were probably being told not to attend. I was the sort of person who would take those emails that get written, that take all the Old Testament verses out of context and make a mockery of Christian faith. And I would get those emails and send them to any Christian that I knew just to show them the ridiculousness of what they believed. I once found a T-shirt, and it said, I found Jesus. He was hiding behind the couch. And I made sure I wore that when I was around my Christian sister just to show what a joke I thought of the faith. 
My friends and I were probably very unlikely prospects for evangelism. My sister, she came up to visit for a weekend. And her and her now husband, they came and entered into my life without judgment, without word. But they came and were present with me in the bar. And they spent Friday and Saturday night. And at the end of the night, they invited me into theirs. And I went to church the next day. It's funny, it was a strange encounter, and I did meet the religious jerk who told me I owned a den of iniquity. And yet I also encountered another type of community. I saw in the worship music there, it was something different than the live bands that I had every night. There was something about these people and the joy and the community they had that was different than the community that I had in my normal week. There was a joy and a peace and an otherness there that I couldn't put my finger on. But as I looked, I saw that my life was a shadow version of this other one that was on offer. It's funny, I'd never really forgotten about God. But I was full of shame and regret for the things that I had done. I knew I wasn't fit for Christian community. To be honest, I also knew that there was a, a huge cost of discipleship. It would cost things that I built a lot of identity around. And I didn't want to give them up. And the mistake I made is that I thought a call to follow Jesus was a call to less life and not more life. And months after that Sunday experience, I'd, I'd sold the bar, and my older sister, she started returning to, to church as well. And every week she invited me. She said, Chris, would you want to come to church with me? I'd say, no, I wouldn't. And the next week, Chris, would you want to come to church with me? Week after week after week. No judgment, no follow-up, just an invitation. Ten, eleven weeks inviting me, would you like to come to church? Eventually, I took up the invitation. It's funny, the Lord was working in me, even though no one would have seen it. There were times where the night before it got so out of hand that I was in no shape to drive the next morning. And my sister would drive across the whole city, pick me up, would reek of booze and stale smoke, and she'd spray me down with a spray of spray she had and walk into church and sit down with me. I was that guy. As I said, I wasn't the likely prospect for evangelism or for someone the Lord would want to call. And yet, as outrageous as it seems, the Lord did call me to follow. He did call me out of my old life and into the new life. And more shockingly, he invited me to eat with him at his table. It's funny that reality was shocking to a lot of people, some of my friends, family, others who knew me. It was shocking to myself. But it was also an incredible moment of great joy for people who had been praying for years, who had been inviting a great joy to myself that I encountered a God who wouldn't give up on me, that could see me as more 
than the sum of the choices I've made and would want to call me to life and call me to his table. The Pharisees asked why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And the answer is it's a reflection of his character. It's born of his love and his mission, his mediator between God and his people. It's an act of the great physician who came to heal his creation, even the sinners. As we look at these five simple verses, there's one mealtime with Jesus. I think there's two things that I ask us to consider. The first one, it's a story that reminds us to see that when we see people who seem to reject our faith, who seem far, far away from God, who through human eyes could never, ever accept a call to repentance, don't fear them. Don't judge them. Don't give up on them. Love them. Pray for them. And invite them. Invite them again and pray for them some more and love them some more and invite them again. Pray that God would use us and this community to give a glimpse of his kingdom. Pray that as a community we could give a glimpse of the pearl of great worth, the pearl of great value and the treasure in the field that's worth giving everything for. Pray that we would take up our priestly roles as mediators, people who would reflect God to a world that's hurting and needs Him. Let's be a people of invitation who know that Jesus didn't call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And secondly, let's not enter this Lenten season presuming that we're the ones that are healthy. Instead, over the next 40 days, let's lead lives of reflection and examination. Let's consider the ways that we're selling out to culture. Let's consider the ways that we've settled for pragmatism instead of a life of faith. Religious cynicism instead of joy. An identity based on cultural values instead of the identity that we have in Christ. As we take time to reflect, let's confess our sickness to him and allow him to heal us. This Lent, let us hear his words of life, his call to forsake all else and follow him. Let's once again hear the good news that Jesus did not come to call righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Amen.